today I have a very special guest, my friend, Tisha Marie Reikley Aguilera. I think I got that right. The author of this epic YA novel, Breaking Pattern, that just came out by Inlandia. I'm going to share the link in the comments right now. So please, everyone, go out and get her book. And for those of you listening in now on Apple Podcasts, welcome. It's December 13th. This is our last podcast of the year, believe it or not, for the Life of Gem podcast. And we have the best guests saving the best for last. But I wanted to let everyone know who's listening in and not watching, please go out and get Breaking Pattern. That's Breaking Pattern by Tisha Marie Reikley Aguilera. And you can get that on Bookshop, on Inlandia, on Barnes & Noble, and at all other local retailers. So we're going to start out by Tisha giving us a reading. But first, let me read her bio. And you're not going to believe this. Great bio. Chicana feminist and former rodeo queen. Tisha Marie Reikley Aguilera writes so the desert landscape of her childhood can be heard as loudly as the urban chaos of her adulthood. She is obsessed with food. Hello, yes. I've known Tisha for years and she loves her some food. After graduating from UCLA, she spent weekends and evenings in UCLA Extension creative writing classes and completed her secondary credential at Cal State Dominguez Hills. She taught high school for almost two decades, earned an MFA at Antioch University, LA, and a PhD, Trojans at the University of Southern California, where she was a Wallace Annenberg Fellow. Her stories have been anthologized in Rural Writers of cover, of Color, Made in LA, Ramblings and Reflections, and many others. Her fiction has been nominated for a Pushcart Prize, one of her chapters she's going to read from today was as well. And her play Blind Thrust Fault was featured in Center Theater Group Writers Workshop Turning the Page Festival at the Kirk Douglas Theater, and her one-act play Temporary Arrangement was featured in the Latinx group of the Short Sweet Festival Hollywood. That's Short and Sweet. Short plus Sweet Festival Hollywood. She was a finalist for the AGE Legacy Playwright Grant and a semi-finalist for the Jeff and Writers Room. She's a Macondista. We're going to talk about that a little bit later. And works for literary equity through women who submit. Check out that organization if you haven't. And you can follow Tisha on Twitter at M-S-R-E-I-C-H-L-E on Instagram, at writer Tish, and on Facebook. You can read her stories and her essays on her website at http, www, you know, tishareikley.com, and I'll put that in the comments. Welcome, Tisha. Let me unmute you. Woohoo! So nice to Thank have you. you. <sighs> Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Big hearts, it. love. You are one of my favorite people. You know this. We're like... I know. We're like the, the minute I met you. <laughs> the minute I met you, your humor, your openness. Um, sometimes I'm too open, I feel like. But then today I had someone tell me that it makes me really warm and inviting yeah. because I'm like an oversharer sometimes. And you're the same way. Like we just mm -hmm. are totally open with one another. If there's no subterfuge, there's no walls. And I just love that about you. Thank you. Thank so you. thank you for those of you who are listening and watching in right now live. I have put the link to uh, Tish's book in the comments. 
while she's reading, you can make comments and or add questions. Okay. So those comments I will share. Tisha, how about you start us off? I know this episode, I called it writing about culture and community because I really think what's most striking about this book. And I know there is no other book like this Mm -hmm. in the literary canon. Uh, about a country young adult Chicana who wants to be a like a rodeo queen, basically. She wants to be a superstar of horses, and she doesn't fit the patterns of what a female Chicana is. She also doesn't fit somewhat. She's biracial. There's a country theme, but that's not really talked about in mm-hmm. books. Mm-hmm. right everything everyone's either one thing or the other and she's kind of a mix of many things so how about you start us off by reading a portion of your book you'll read more at the end but right after you read we'll get into our conversations I'm gonna go away in the background and let you take over but I'm thank here. you so I do want to before I start reading I want to say thank you to Jem. Um, for this amazing year of amplifying other writers voices I think that Jem emulates what being part of a writing community means. And since we're talking about culture and community, writing is part of our culture. And this writing community is better because of the work that Jem does and the the kind of um, energy she puts into other people's lives. I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing. A lot of the of the things that I've been doing this past week since the book came out are because of Jem's influence. So thank you, Jem. I'm going to start by reading from chapter three. It's the chapter is um, starts with the main character, Adriana, at home, and then she goes to school. And the chapter is called Runnel Valley High School. It's one of the one of several chapters that takes place at the high school. My alarm clock tells me it's too early to be awake, even though school starts today. But my goats clearly disagree. Kid starts his repetitive, high-pitched bleeding. He doesn't care that his antics kick up all kinds of dust, probably some poop, or that he'll have to clean all that out of his water trough. In contrast, his pregnant mother, Gertie, can barely move, lets out long, slow bleats. No time to wash my face, I throw on a semi-clean pair of jeans and trade my pajama top for an old T-shirt. Come on, princess, I call out to my dog. She's been super lazy lately, doesn't follow me out to the pens anymore when I feed, and barely crawls out of the way when my parents walk by. I nudge her gently with the side of my foot. What's the matter, girl, huh? I scratch behind her ears. You think it's too early for hungry goats, too, don't you? She gets up and goes outside. It's slightly cooler than I expect. I shiver and slip into rubber boots. Princess stretches and plops down right in front of the shed door. Now you know I need to get in there. I lean down and slide her across the concrete out of my way. Fucci, you need a bath. By now, kid's noise has escalated and he tries to climb out the pen. Gertie's hunger has clearly increased and if she could, she would have already kicked kid out her way. Dang, little mama, there's enough for you both. Kid muscles past her, so I only give him half and shake the rest out in the other feed trough for her. In the flank area behind Gertie's rib cage, one tiny hoof tries to push through her light brown skin and escape her body prematurely. About another month to go, Gert, 
I pat kids, dark brown head. You're going to have a new brother or sister soon. The only time I can clean the pen without kid trying to nibble my clothes is when they're eating. I climb over the low fence into their pen and rip my pants right in the crotch. Damn it. I look around, but there's no one who might see. A cool breeze floats up my butt. I rake and scoop the manure over the fence into a pile. Once I get all the gunk out of the metal water trough and refill it, the split in my pants is so big, half my butt hangs out. Adriana Elizabeth Herrera Bowen, mom yells from the doorway in her robe. She only uses my entire name when she is totally horrified. Princess exerts more effort than she has in weeks, tries to escape the wrath. Even kid stops eating to look up for a second. Mom points at my bright green chonis. Climbing the goat fence, I answer her unasked question. Time for new jeans. Get in the house, she hisses. Also looks for anyone who can see my exposed nalgas. I still have to feed and water princess. At the mention of her name, she lifts her head briefly and slaps her tail once against the nearby metal container. I'll do that, Mom offers. Go change or you're going to miss the bus. As I bend over to take off my boots, the pants rip more. Sin vergüenza, Mom curses under her breath. You'd be madder if I tracked mud and poop in the house. There's not enough time for me to shower, so I wipe down, rinse my mouth, and brush the alfalfa out out of my hair. I tr throw on jeans that I'm sure are clean and the shirt mom bought for my first day. It's a little snug. At the locker I share with my ninth grade cousin Marita, she puts her shiny pink lips up close to my face and whispers, guess who likes me? Her carefully feathered hair frames her gobs of blue eyeliner and sparkly blue eyeshadow. Prima, I grumble. It's too early for your love life. We don't have any classes together, but our books share space all day with Maritza's cheerleading duffel bag. She stands there eyes wide and leans against the mint green metal, which clashes with the newly reddened streaks in her black hair. I roll my eyes because I know she isn't going away until I guess, but I don't want to. Who? I pretend to be excited fake my interest with a high-pitched squeal and an exaggerated clap. But instead of answering, Maritza stands up closer to me, shifts her books to her purse arm, reaches over to my hair, and pulls something out. What the hell is this, Adriana? Her face is scarier with all that makeup. She puts a stick of hay so close to my face, my eyes cross and I have to step back. She steps closer to my head and sniffs. You smell like a goat, disgusting. Emergency intervention time. She pushes me down the hall. But my class is that way, I protest. I can't be late on the first day of school. Even I'm not that much of a slacker. Better than stinky. I have a reputation to protect now that Gabriel Aguilar likes me. Gabriel Aguilar, Blanca's neighbor? Isn't he a senior? And last I heard, bad news. She shoves me into the nearest bathroom where two girls with thick black eyeliner are smoking. I choke. They ignore us and Marita uses a bottle of yellow spray from her purse to mist over my now smoky smell. 
goat seems less offensive. Even though I'm older than the other juniors because I was held back in second grade, I'm taking algebra again. It's one of the many classes where I suck. Blanca and Josh are in geometry. Maritza takes honors algebra. And Eric is in some advanced trigonometry class. Even when he tries to help me, I struggle. Most of the students in my math class are sophomores. A few freshmen who took pre-algebra in junior high, like the Winters twins are probably doing, even though they are total airheads sometimes. I don't recognize anyone. I stop right inside the doorway and look for a desk where I can disappear. A tall, sweaty man shoves past me and knocks my backpack off my shoulder. He doesn't apologize. Everyone has assigned seats, he says, in alphabetical order. Make a line in the back of the room, and after I issue you a book, you can have a seat. There are only two students in front of me. Blanca Alvarez's cousin, who is absent, and a blonde girl about four feet tall. I can't hide behind her. Mr. Wietzel hands us books that look like mom and dad might have used them in high school. Haley James Burnett is assigned the seat behind me, but she's absent too. Part of me is glad she's as dumb as I am. Mr. Wietzel starts class with a review of whole numbers and integers. The boy next to me asks to borrow paper and proceeds to draw his name in giant letters all over it. When Mr. Wietzel talks about adding integers and order of operations, it all sounds familiar. Maybe I'm finally starting to understand this crap. Then he gives us homework on the first day. It's a puzzle, something fun, he says. I put it in my folder. No, I won't remember anything when I get home. After listening to Mrs. Chavez drone on about her classroom policies, the number of books we'll be reading in American Lit, and how we would soon learn to love the rules of grammar, I have some relief in advanced biology. It's the only class besides art where I don't feel like a complete moron. The teacher is new, a hippie, or at least he looks like one. He says we can call him by his first name, Harrison. There are no books, only a pile of handouts and a box of crayons at each table. He lets us choose our seats. Adriana, over here. Blanca's brown cowboy hat has been replaced by a raspberry beret, and her sleeveless shirt is covered in flowers that match her hot pink leather skirt. Straddling the hard metal stool next to her, I kind of wish Maritza had improved more than my smell. Blanca makes me care a little about what I wear. This shirt squishes me. Eric joins us. It's our only class together. He sits and puts a hand on my back. Rough morning, Adriana. A warm tingle begins under his touch. I sit up and look at him without answering. And I bite my tongue to keep from asking if he has a girlfriend I don't know about. Why did I let Chelsea and Cheyenne get in my head like that? While Harrison passes out field trip permission forms, Eric asks if we've heard about team roping in September. I tell him about Clay's visit to Fiona's because of Gunner. But I don't mention that Clay asked me to be his healer. Blanca responds, Josh asked if I wanted to team up. She avoids looking at me, asks if we've seen Haley. She was supposed to be in my English class. She's in my math class, I say, but wasn't here today. Eric prints his name slowly and neatly on the field trip form. Maybe she decided on private school. He frowns with a concentration and smiles proudly at his handiwork. That dimple, 
I never noticed it before. Or homeschool, Blanca offers, like Bobby Joe did, so she could spend all her time focused on barrel racing. Blanca wrinkles her nose, which is weird. What is, I ask, homeschool or spending all your time with a horse? I imagine spending all my time with Pearl, the way Bobby Joe does with Skipper. It would be so much better than school. I could still see my friends on weekends and maybe I'd become a world champion barrel racer too. It's not a bad idea, Eric says, if Haley plans to compete like her cousin in real barrel racing. It isn't necessary for our little junior rodeos. Little? I say too loudly for the echoey classroom. Nearby students glare at me for interrupting their conversations. Harrison barely looks up from his music magazine. Eric is taken aback, and then I see familiar sympathy in his eyes. Dark green today in the classroom's dim lights. He gives me his half smile, usually reserved for a missed loop or a run too slow for points. Unless you're Bobby Joe James. He says her name like she's the queen of the world. There's more to life than rodeo. He reaches out to pat my arm. I jerk it away, devastated that my so-called best friend dissed my dreams. Eric, you know how much that all-around saddle means to me and Pearl. I glare at Blanca too. And you know how much I want that rodeo team scholarship like Osvaldo got. They both look shocked at my outburst as if I've never talked about my life's goals before. I lower my voice and put my palms on the table. I stare straight at Eric. This is my life. It will always be my life. I choke and my body heats up. And I'll stop right there. Oh, I love it. I love it. You really are a master at dialogue. And we're going to talk about Thank that you. right now. Talk about how you write young adult dialogue. We're both more mature writers who write in YA voice. I do memoir, but I'm working on a YA novel right now. And I have to say, the hardest part to me is creating the dialogue out of whole cloth. Because with fiction, you can kind of use your imagination, but you still want it to sound authentic. And I know you're a playwright as well. So talk about how the art of dialogue, your book is very dialogue heavy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it, you never, I never felt like the characters were um, not speaking authentically in their own voices. Thank and you. you have a lot of friends within the book too, which to me was really important because what people don't realize in young adult, young adult characters have much different goals than adult characters, right? right. This is a quest novel. Her quest though, isn't to get like a typical YA novel to get into Princeton. Her quest is to become this rodeo girl, right? And to ride her horses and to be true to who she wants to be and get to wear her boots and not her heels. And talk about that as well. Not only the YA voices that you had to create in dialogue, but the YA characters and what their goals are. Her friends have different goals too. It's right. not a typical YA novel where it's, you know, my goal is to get into number one college or something, which that's or what I love. Or to get the boy, about. right? Or, or to get to the get boy. boy. Yeah. So, um, so you, you brought up a couple of things. Um, I will say this. I love that. I love that Jem called us more mature writers. She said that because we old. I'm okay. I'm okay with being old. I've been on this planet a long time and I've worked hard. I've worked hard to be 51 years old. Shit. Um, I'm 52. <laughs> high five, I got high one five. year on you. Right. 
Oh, nice, and I'm, uh, I'm using my breaking pattern. Oh, pattern. I love it. My friend's going to be so happy. A friend of mine made those for, uh, for my events. Aren't they lovely? She did a great job. Um, so I've often said that um, part of the reason why I write, um, I think I write young adult dialogue, like teenagers, better than I write adults. And I think the reason for that is, um, as you heard in my bio, I taught high school for 20 years. And I think in my head, I'm still 16, 17 years old. Um, and so I think that helps. It also helps that I've been around teenagers. Uh, my, my sister's daughters, the oldest one is now out of college, but the other two are still in high school. Um, several of my very close friends have teenage children. And I, I'm nosy. I listen to them. I eavesdrop on them and their friends. Now they're not, they're not watching this, so they're not going to know. Um, and actually, I'm the, I'm the Thea who tells them, right? I'm the auntie who's like, Mm-hmm, I heard that. Right. So I listen to kids. I, I pay attention to what they're doing now in the ninth. The, the book is set in the 1980s. And so there's a lot of language that's very different. There were moments I had to call my cousin and be like, how do we say that when someone thought she was better than everyone else? Or how did we how did we used to call that person who was like this? And so I relied heavily on my community. Right. My sister, my cousin, um, high school friends. And so I you have that. that scene in the bathroom where the girls are smoking in the bathroom mm -hmm. and they have black mm -hmm. eyeliner and they're spraying like a baby love vest or something or Gina uh -huh. Tay. I, I imagine uh -huh. the Gina Tay, you know, yeah. you know, it was I the know. Gina Tay. Yellow. Yeah. Yellow bottle. Yeah. It was one yeah. and two. I was like, mm, probably it was also some of the wealthier girls, uh, you know, wealthier than us would have had like that Giorgio. Remember that Giorgio? Mm -hmm. I, we didn't have that. We had Gina Tay over here at this house. Mm -hmm. Um, well, not this house, but when where we we live, we had Gina Tay at our house. Um, I love so, how it smelled. <laughs> I, I do too. I don't it. wear any perfumes anymore, but when I smell those, when I smell, I'm like, oh my gosh, whoa, take me back. Um, so that's kind of like the dialogue. I feel like it comes, it does come very naturally to me. I'm also a talker, in case you haven't noticed. Um, so I think that helps. I talk out loud all the time. I have conversations out loud. My neighbors probably mm. think I'm a crazy person. I've been talking to myself out loud in the grocery store and someone will walk by and go, excuse me. I was like, Oh, I was saying that out loud. They're like, you weren't talking to me. I said, mm, I was talking to myself and the people in my head. So, you know, people think you know, I'm talking to the voices that are in my head. That's great. Tisha. Um, and I talk uh, back to TV shows. My husband's like, who oh, are you talking sure. to? I'm oh, like, oh, sure. no, That's... they got that wrong. And I'm telling them, you got that wrong, but it's okay. Move on. Well, I grew up with a dad who would talk back to all the sporting events. So I thought that's what you were supposed to do. How, would I, how was I supposed to know? Um, so, and I will say what you mentioned about all the characters, Jim, I, and I think you and I have talked about this before. I got, I got, I've always had a lot of criticism in workshops that I have too many people in my novels, in my stories. I'm like, but my world has too many people. Like yeah. it doesn't, uh, my family is huge. Um, my friend groups are large and I, I like that about my life. I like that I have a large community of support and, and people in my life from all different um, realms of society. And so I wanted that to be reflected in the book. And I think it is also reflected in the character's goals. I, you know, growing up in the 80s, it, there weren't a lot of models for nonconformity, right? You kind of went mm -hmm. along. You did what you were supposed to. At least I did. And that's Even not the masculine feminine thing. I mean, I used to right. be called a tomboy. 
They didn't mm-hmm. have a word for a girl who had a little bit more masculine energy. Right, know? right. And so I feel like, um, I feel like what I did was I tried to set up characters who reflected all the people mm-hmm. that were in my life. So there were girls who didn't want to wear dresses, who didn't, and I, I didn't want Adriana's goal to be to get the boy, even though that's very much a common trope of young adult novels. Like that's an underlying, um, one of the underlying plot lines. And I was just talking about this with my niece the other day about like tropes of, of romance novels and how, how can you, how can you flip the script? How can you subvert those tropes? Um, How can we do that in our writing? And then by extension, expect that from other writers. Like, I don't want there to always be like girl meets boy or that, or even girl meets girl, but that the relationship is always the primary focus. I know that's a trope of romance novels, but how can that look different for us moving forward? Uh, And then her main goal is to be the all around cowgirl. I, um, I have belt buckles for all around cowgirl in Blythe. Um, and I think one from another rodeo. I have to go back and look at belt buckles. Um, we have my sister and I have a bunch of them. But I think having that as her primary goal, everything else is secondary. School, um, her family, her friends oftentimes get pushed aside. You know, she doesn't tell them things because she's so focused on the horses. And so I think that um, that makes this story very different from what you typically see in YA novels. I, I think it would be in the vein of like sports focused novels. Like the goal is the soccer tournament or the, the basketball, the big basketball game and things like that. Um, but in a more individualized way, because rodeo um, isn't always a team sport, except for team roping, which is alluded to when she said Clay wanted her to be a he, his healer. She didn't mean like to heal his, Aura. It was H E E L E R, and that's the the person in team roping that comes in second and ropes the calves' heels after the other person has roped the horns um, in team roping. So, let me just fix my camera stuff really quick. Sorry, everyone, about this. No, but I think you make a good point about some of these issues. You know, it's like this is not. It may you may make it look easy, but it's not easy. You know. <laughs> It, it really isn't. Talk also, you know, you did mention, and I just want to give a shout out to Lupe Mendez, writer, and Nicolai Garcia, who both shared this on Twitter. And I know there's people watching on Twitter live. So thank, thank you for you. tweeting this interview. Talk a little bit about linguistics. Um, so there is some Spanish translations and back and forth kind of conversations in a very um, conversational way where people mix Spanish and English, perhaps. How did you do that? Are are you a native Spanish speaker? So um, I don't necessarily, I I don't identify as a native Spanish speaker, but I didn't speak English until I went to kindergarten. My my mom's parents, um, I stayed with them growing up when I was, mom would go to work at the bank and I would stay with my gramita or my papa and they spoke to me in Spanish. And I think my mom also spoke to us primarily in Spanish when we were kids. Um, my dad also speaks Spanish. And so, and we grew up on the border. Like I was born in El Centro, California, which is right on the US-Mexico border in Mexicali. And so 
uh, my tias spoke in Spanish, my nina spoke in Spanish. And so I grew up knowing more Spanish than English until I went to school. But then once we got to school, everything was in English. So mm. I lost a lot. Like I speak Spanish like a six-year-old, you know, my, I don't conjugate verbs well. I have a limited vocabulary. Um, I am currently teaching a, a narrative writing class for the teachers at Escuela de la Raza Unida. And I will try and explain things both in English and Spanish. And it, it really is a testament to the beauty of this community. I'm, I'm at my parents' house in Blythe right now. It's really a testament to the beauty of this community because it's because I don't know all the words in Spanish. So I'll explain around things. And some of the students in my class will then come up with the words in Spanish. And I've learned so much, um, so many new vocabulary words because in this class, we're teaching each other. And I, I, I really appreciate that. But my characters are, they're pocha like me and they speak both English and Spanish. And so that language, that moving in and out of language is really important to me. Um, it's also very important to me as a writer that the Spanish is not italicized mm. because we know that in, in a lot of um, conventions, the Spanish or a foreign language is italicized, but Spanish isn't foreign to me. It's not foreign to my characters. And so Spanish, English, Spanglish, those should all exist kind of fluidly within the text without that visual disruption. And that's something I learned with from my very first writing mentor. Um, I did a, a class called Confessions of uh, an Evening Novelist with Terry de la Peña, a writer from Santa Monica. And that was, I think, the first time that I realized how important that fluidity of English, Spanish, Spanish was to me. Like I always knew it subconsciously, but it wasn't until I started putting it in writing that I realized I needed to assert that for myself and for my work as a creative writer. Well, um, th that's the thing, right? The linguistics of it are not easy, but you mm -hmm. do it and you do it in a way that you do your due diligence. You make sure it's correct, but you also make sure it's not that it's slang enough because it's not a, it's not a, I don't want to be, I don't mean it as slang, but there's a certain style of California Spanish yes. that my mom speaks. Um, and my mom was a native Spanish speaker, came here, only spoke Spanish until she went to elementary school. Then she had the Spanish slapped out of her. Basically. Uh -huh. my, mom, my mom had that experience too in school. And I will tell you this. I have to say, I frequently called my mom or texted my mom, how did we used to say this? Or because the, a Google Translate or like an academic dictionary is not going to give you oh, the no. same thing. I also have a very dear friend. I don't know if he's listening, but a very dear friend who grew up in all the same parts of the country that I did. Is that okay? And he speaks the same kind of pocho, borderland Spanish, but he's also a Spanish teacher. So he knows the formal academic language and he has been a tremendous help in making sure that I'm using the kind of language that in, and we're the same age. So in that era, in that region. Okay. 
So I was saying that my friend, he was instrumental in making sure that my Spanish reflected the era and the region and the kind of like bocha-isms that we had growing up. And he, he's he been, I hope when he reads it, he's not like cringing at anything I messed up. But I, I checked with him and my mom a lot to make sure that I was doing the, that I was honoring the language and honoring our culture in that way. Yeah, and there's a lot of California t- terms that are specific, like the term weta or weta. Uh-huh. You know, it's spelled with a G. In my book, I spell it with a W because that's how Jenny heard it. Got it. And, oh, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So it's really interesting. Sometimes the choices we can make um, to try, because my character is a complete culture. She doesn't know any Spanish. Uh, Spanish was help withheld from her, right? Mm-hmm. You're a mm-hmm. character. The Spanish is kind of intermingling with the English, which is so true to so many young adults as they're forced to kind of try to assimilate, but they want to hold on to their culture. So I just thought it was really well done how you did it, you know? Um, Thank you. Yeah, it was really well done. Talk about the cover really quick. For those of you who don't, um, for those of you who haven't seen this cover, it's just beautifully done. It's by a Riverside artist. You want to talk about that? So I, um, I, it was really important to me. And fortunately, Inlandia believed in my vision it was really important to me that because the book is set in the eighties that we do kind of a throwback style, right? This is, this is not what modern book covers look like. Um, but it was really important to me that, um, the cover reflect one, the landscape of the region and two, the theme of the book. And so the event that you see here is pole bending. And if the horse doesn't, um, go weave in between the poles correctly, horse and rider, um, they break pattern and breaking pattern means a disqualification. So those things were important to me. And I didn't want to just use stock images. So I went on a mish. I um, started looking for artists, Latina artists in the Inland Empire. And I kept coming back to this one painting called The Dreamers, called Dreamers. Mm. Um, by Rosie Cortez. You can find her on Instagram at Painted Rosie, R-O-S-Y. And just the, it's a picture of a mother and her children. It looks like they're on a train or bus. Um, And then the colors that she uses and the expression on the mother's face. And I actually used it for an ekphrastic writing class that I took um, one summer. And I used it, um, ekphrastic writing is where you write in response to another piece of art. And so I wrote the story of this person. Like I just started writing down like what she might be thinking, where's she going, what's happening in her life. And then I did some more research about the artist and I found out that she lived in Riverside and um, had gone to school in, in Long Beach. I think that's accurate. Sorry, Rosie, if I messed that up. And so I imagined this woman taking that, tra- that route, right, on public transportation. And so just like all of these things were going on and then... I had, um, I started following Rosie on Instagram and she was in conversation with at Paramama, also a Latina um, artist in the Inland Empire. And they were talking about how the mural work they've done and the portraiture and the landscapes and how they didn't want to get pigeonholed and how it was really important to them to be able to do all kinds of art. And they wanted to try something new. And I was like, 
okay. So I messaged her and I was like, would a painting that could possibly be a book cover be a something new that you would want to do? And she told me that we, we, she told me later when we met up that she had had told her, she works out of the East side art house in Riverside. And she had told them that she wasn't taking any more commissions, but then she got my message and I explained who I was and what I was doing, what my book was about. And we met and Rosie just got my vision instantly. I showed her some photos. Um, and then this idea, Juanita showed you how the front continues onto the back. How the, And so what Rosie did was she painted the background and then wow. took a digital photograph so that um, the book designer, so that Mark could in, make it wrap around. That was one of the stylistic choices that I um, yeah. that was really important to me. I did that with my book too. I, I love that yeah. about your book. I love yeah. that so much. Yeah, and look I, how beautiful. But I love that yours is an actual painting that's almost a three D object in the book, right? Yeah, I commissioned the painting from Rosie, and I have to say, um, you know, I I'm not the kind of person who would normally commission a painting. But when um, my sister wanted to throw mm-hmm. a birthday party for me for my 50th birthday, and I was like, yeah, but I don't want presents. Like, people are going to want to bring gifts. And, I mean, the reality is, que no quiero más cochinero en mi casa. Like, I just want a bunch more stuff in my house. And so I was like, what if you put it out there with the invitation that um, you will be taking donations to help me commission this painting Aww. for my 50th birthday? And I have to tell you, you know, shout out to my familia. Um, biological and not always biological, they came through. Like I didn't pay for the painting. My familia did. It was my birthday present from the family to have. And because of that, there, I don't know if some of them have books already, but they're all acknowledged in, um, in my acknowledgements because I thought that was really important that they be recognized for their contribution to this Mm -hmm. thing. This is not something that happened in isolation not the painting. And I think if you talk to Rosie or if you hear Rosie talk, she would talk about the same. That's one thing we have in common, like this idea of we don't exist in isolation as artists. We are part of a larger community and it's that's that art is part of our culture. And so this book happened because of my family and friends who Mm -hmm. I consider family because of Inlandia, because of the people at women who submit, who've been, and Makondo, who've been on this journey with me. I just, I cannot emphasize that enough. The cover really um, captures what the book is about, but also is is symbolic of what we do as writers in community. Yeah, and it is a testament to that because you can't just buy a painting and use it on your book. You know, Rosie had to agree to this. She mm-hmm. got your vision and Landia mm-hmm. was on board too. You know, she let you buy the painting and then also use it for your book cover, which you didn't have to do. You know, a lot of people can buy a painting. doesn't mean they can put it on their book cover. Right. And it's right. just beautiful. You did. And you had that vision for yourself. You know, um, you're in Blythe now. Um, you're right. from Blythe. Talk about was, yeah. why. Yeah. Why you chose to set the novel in Riverside, which I thought was a brilliant idea to set it in the IE. It's a very, you know, um, one of our favorite writers, both of us, is Isabel Quintero. She's pretty Love much, Isabel. her and Susan Strait are the two IE writers that most people know. And it's like her book, Gabby, A Girl in Pieces, is in a fictional town that is much like Corona, where she grew up. Mm-hmm. And you grew mm-hmm. up in Blythe, and you set it in Riverside. So, and I set it very specifically, it's called Runnel Valley in the book, but it's very specifically in the area that we now know as the Harupa Valley area, 
which is where my tia lives. My tia lives off Pedley Road. And for those of you who don't know, Blythe is um, right on the California-Arizona border. If you're driving on Interstate 10, it's right before you cross the river into Arizona. It's Riverside County, actually. And it is, it is part of Riverside County. I joke that I'm as far inland as you can go and still be part of the empire. Um, so <laughs> Public it, Defender Office has one attorney there. And they've oh, had the so same funny. attorney there for like 30 years. Yeah. I have to go by and introduce myself. Uh-huh. Um, it's like an so, old dude. This the reason I was a baby writer and in order for it to feel like fiction and for people that I rodeoed with and that I grew up with not to feel like, oh, that's me. Oh, my God. Did I say that? I thought it was well, for two reasons. I thought it was better to set it in this fictional place. But I also wanted um, I thought it was important to also kind of uh, boost the the competitiveness of it. The, the characters talk a lot about earning points for this all-around cowgirl. The way we did rodeo was very different. There were no points that accumulated over the season. It was each big rodeo. I think it was like three or four times a year. This is um, officially through the California Junior Rodeo Association. And I kind of wanted to add that layer of tension to the book by connecting it to that, um, that like official ro- junior rodeo competition. And I should clarify Rodeo and junior rodeo are different in age group, right? So I didn't compete in like big PRCA rodeos um, where at the time women were only competing in barrel racing. Um, I competed in all these other events in junior rodeo events and 4-H Gymkhana's. So Riverside was part of my growing up because we were also in 4-H. We raised animals. Mm-hmm. I was a Calif- I was a Riverside County 4-H All-Star. Oh. I was a California Diamond Star. And so I represented Riverside County 4-H in the state of California. And I was a Washington Focus delegate. So I represented Riverside County when I was in high school in Washington, D.C. at this big 4-H conference. Um, so a lot of my life, especially in high school, when I did a lot more of these leadership activities, took place off Pedley Road in Riverside. Mm. And some of them short fiction. One of my short stories is set at that Thea's house. And it's me and my cousins and our adventure. It's all fiction. But we go to the Tyler Mall on the bus when my Thea's are all intoxicated and they don't know we sneak out. And we I love that pet. story. I've heard, right? I've heard you read it. Yeah. And it's on. It's actually published by Inlandia. And the Inlandia Journal. So you can check that out if you want more Riverside-based uh, insanity from my from my brain here. Um, so that's part of the reason. Now, the other reason, and I'm, I don't want to spoil anything, but um, Blythe does play a role in this novel. And the short story that started all of this when I was at Antioch is set in Blythe. It's not specified that it's Blythe, but it is... Um, I know it's I know it's set in Blythe. And so yeah. I've actually gone back to that story more recently and pulled out a few sentences that are going to be my prompts as I start to work on the sequel of mm. the novel. So there's gonna be a sequel. That's a winter, that's a winter break. Get yourself back in the saddle of writing um project. Yeah. So my nieces yeah. and my sister have committed to uh urging me along um, in yeah. any way we can to make sure that I can at least get started on this sequel over winter break, try to capitalize on that 
time I have and, and keep that momentum going. Yeah. You know, my goal next year, I've made a promise to myself to pull back on some of my boards and stuff. And I already quit the publications of Riverside Lawyer on their committee. I, I withdrew and I, I got another public defender to take over for me, a young kid named Alan Fong that I love. And, um, I, you know, I don't have much more time to serve. And I think it's really important that it's important to, you know, market our books and all that and market other writers. But it's also important to give yourself time to work on these bigger projects. And for yeah. that, I have to be honest. You need time. You need space and you need to do um, workshops and generative workshops at Macondo at Bona. Talk about how Macondo played a role in your journey as a writer. A lot of people don't know the Macondo Writers Workshop, but we're both part of it. And yes. you're a Macondista for life once you're a Macondista. For life. For They're life. stuck for with me now. For so um, yeah. I blood in, blood for, out. You can't get right? out once you're in. Yeah. <laughs> can't get out. Um, <laughs> I first heard about Macondo way back in the day. Um, I That workshop I mentioned, Confessions of an Evening Novelist with Terry de la Peña, I was in that workshop with Pat Alderete. And uh, Pat was one of, Pat's an OG Macondista. And oh. when it first started, my understanding is that um, Sandra Cisneros invited a group of writers who then invited a group of writers who then invited a group of writers um, and it grew that way for a number of years until Sandra moved to San Miguel de Allende. I don't know the timing of everything, but when Macondi, when Macondo Writers Workshop started up again, um, Pat reached out to me and I was like, Pat, I'm not ready. Like, I'm not, it was very much an insecurity, right? I'm not worthy. I, I can't be a Macondista yeah. and I'm not, I'm not writing as much as I should or I used to. And, but by asking me, by inviting me, by including me in community, Pat planted the seed, mm. right? As, as we as educators, many of us who are educators and writers know, you, you plant the seed. And it really was a motivation to get myself together so that I could be worthy. So that the next time yeah. the opportunity presented itself, I could say, Pata, I'm ready. I'm applying. And so I did. I joined Macondo. And the first year I went, it was a generative workshop. What year workshop. was it? Do we start the first year? Because Liz Gonzalez told me to apply. And I was like, I'm going to get in. Are you crazy? Like, you know, I'm not, not worthy. I want to say 2016. It was okay, before I, I started was grad 2017. school. Yeah, okay. It was before I started graduate school. Twenty Somewhere in there. And I went, it was um, when it was... Uh, we did like kind of a rotation. Alex Gonzalez taught one of the workshops. Okay. Um, Tim Z Hernandez taught one of the workshops. I'll never forget in Tim's workshop. I, I'm not, I don't go out in nature. You, you would think, right. This is what I did all my childhood. I was dirty all the time. Um, now I'm not so much. My, I leave that to my sister. She does all the gardening. Um, but Tim had us go out and look at stuff. And I sat I sat on the ground and watched a spider inside, like, wow. like it was inside these bushes. And I love spiders. It makes me kind of a weirdo, I realize, to some people. I don't kill them. I will catch them and release them out into the potted plants my sister put outside my front door, um, Some, most of which are dead because I, do I don't that with take care crickets. of crickets. I love crickets. Yeah, I don't. I mean, yeah. I try to catch, but I try not to kill them. Or I'll talk to them and be like, look, you can stay over there in the corner, but if you come for me, we're going to fight. Don't come for me. Well, you'll be fine. One came like descended, like it was descending on my head. I was like, 
I told you to stay up there. Now, in that case, you just get a Ziploc bag, you take it outside, you shake it out. It's well, we get black widows in the Oak Hills area. Yeah, you have in the to be careful. Desert. You got to kill those. But I mean, I try not to kill spiders either. There's a show called uh, Murder at the Edge of the World, and there's a Latina astronaut in her. I think she's Latina. And at some point, she says, once you're in space, you will never kill anything ever again, not even a spider, because you nice. realize how precious life is. Yes. Right? Well, and yeah. they take care of all the, they eat the good, the bugs that are a nuisance, right? Mm -hmm. I want them in the, in the bugs. Um, but anyway, I digress. How did I get on spiders? I don't even know how I got there. Um, what, what were we talking about that I got on? I do that all the time, Jim. I'm so sorry. Uh, we were talking about Macondo and, you know, whatever. Oh, about, I, was yeah. I was, I was watching this spider and that kind of generative, I think that first Macondo was really about just nurturing my soul and then I started writing more I started working on a collection of stories and then I started grad school so I quit mm -hmm. teaching like a crazy person I quit my job who does that when they're 44 years old quit oh, my job I love that about you <laughs> brave break brave. the pattern right don't stay at the same job like you were supposed to I quit yeah. and I started a PhD program at USC so I had a lot of more time to work on stories and um, I started, um, I pulled up the interviews that I had done with my mom, my tias, and my Nina about their mother, about my gramita. And mm -hmm. I started writing a fictionalized version of her life. Um, and I took that to the next Macondo Writers Workshop, and I workshop with Elena Maria Viramontes. And this past oh, yeah. year... Oh, yeah. That's the year I met you. Yeah. Elena is... I mean, I've taken, this is my, that's my second workshop with Elena. The first one was after the workshop with Terry de la Peña, I, I took a train up to Oregon to Flight of the Mind, um, oh, wow. which Liz Gonzalez has also been to that same workshop. We have that in common as well. Um, Liz and I have like these weird overlapping lives, like place and space and not at the same time, but like we've been all in the same, it's kind of crazy. Um, anyway. Hi, Liz. Yeah, because I did Macondo with Stephanie Alessandro Gist and then Joy Castro. And I was Joy's supposed the to be I in the one a political writer. She was yes. like, like more about your work. And I was like, eh, not interested in writing about public defense because of the privileges. I was scared of, course, of it. Of course. I was and supposed then, to be in that yeah. workshop with Stephanie's workshop what? with you. In Stephanie's workshop. And I don't remember what happened that year that I wasn't able to go. And I was, was Desiree Zamorano in your workshop with Joy Castro? I think so. That might've been when I met you. Yeah. Was that one. Because I, at that Macondo, I did a seminar, one of those afternoon seminars on submission strategies. I remember. And yes, yes, yes. That might be when we met at that Macondo. And that Macondo I was in. And then we went out to eat a couple of times because you like yes, food. Yes, you drove us and all I over the place. Food. You were so yeah. awesome. Um, oh, so, yeah, we rented these, a car I and I actually got pulled over in it because my friend Cecilia Bailly is from Texas. She's a macondista. She's an OG one. She started at the kitchen table with uh -huh, Sandra. Uh -huh. And I've known Cecilia and her sister Sadia. They're twins. I, I went, her twin is a lawyer. I've known them since I lived in Houston 17, 18 years ago. And so we drove around a lot because I had a rental car and I, I was kind of the mama driver. Yes. And I'm the worst driver. So it's somewhat <laughs> ironic. Yeah. But everyone That's hilarious. around. That's hilarious. But workshops like Macondo, the most recent one, um, I did a workshop with Sharon Bridgeforth on like performance, multi-genre performance Ooh. writing. 
And I started a new play. That wow. play is set in Blythe. Ooh. And um, how many about, characters are in it? It's four. It's four women oh, that's who good. Um, run a garage. Um, and then there's like voiceover from the from the past, from the dads. So um, the main character has inherited this garage that her father and grandfather had. Um, she's a mechanic. And then the other three characters are all connected to her in some kind of way. Ooh, so I guess really? five. You know is what good. I learned? Yeah, five is good. Uh, from playwriting, when I took a class with Justin mm -hmm. Maxwell a couple mm -hmm. semester goes at University of New Orleans, is the less characters, the better nowadays for staging, for cost, well, right? Budget, yeah, exactly. So yeah. when I did the play with Center Theater Group, I wish I had known that, but when you work with Luis Alfaro, Luis is like, do everything, everything. It's big, like do it all. We don't no, don't limit yourself. So that play was, it started with just four teachers and they were having lunch, but mm. then they went to their classrooms and you can't have a classroom with no students. So then each classroom had four students. Well, you can't just have four. So it ended up being like eight teenagers and four, and then an, another adult to like be comic relief. Um, we made the one dude in the play, the comic relief, um, but it was just so much fun. But again, it's hard for me to have a world with only four people. Like my world just isn't like that. So yeah. it's my challenge. My new challenge for myself is to make this play, keep it down, keep it under six. Like I have the four main characters and then yeah. the woman who returns and then the voice of the man. So it'd be like six people. Um, but it's, that that generative, even though it's not this project working on the sequel or working on the other three novels I have in progress right now, it's ridiculous. There are so many voices in my head. I don't know how I keep them all straight. Even though the but it's are, good to work on different projects. I think oh, that's sure. a hint I always give people. For I sure. have my blog. I have my podcast. I wear a mm -hmm. lot of different hats. I do legal essay writing for magazines occasionally, and then I have my book projects. A couple of them that I'm working and, and you do amazing work. columns for Inlandia. Yeah, I for love the press doing enterprise. That, those essays, and you just You're did really one that good. I love. And um, I think it's good when you when you have different projects, so you're mm -hmm. always writing, but you don't get stuck. You know? Right. Right. I have the problem that because I also teach um, yeah. at a really busy, this is my first semester. This past semester was my first semester out of graduate school. Mm. And so not really knowing I'm adjuncting, not really knowing how everything works. I took on too many classes, too much responsibility, and I haven't had time to write plus launching a book. Plus yeah. I'm driving out to Blythe once a month to teach these classes for Escuela de la Raza Unida. And because I was already out here, I was like, oh, well, why don't I just come by the high school when I show up in town and I'll do some playwriting with the kids? So it was just like, I got excited about working on all these projects. And I know now, like, I have to, I'm not 20 something anymore, right? I used to be able to do exactly. all the things in my 20s yeah. and 30s. Now I have to be more protective of my writing time so that I can do the things that I do well. And yeah. One of those things has to be this sequel or my sister might not ever forgive me. And, you know, I would encourage you to at least set up a couple Barnes and Noble dates. I'll tell you how to do that when we end okay. off air. Um, it's really easy, actually. Um, there's certain Barnes and Nobles that are very, um, you can sell as many. As, I, at most Barnes and Noble events, I sell 20 to 25 books. Oh, nice. 
Yeah, and that's a lot. And it's about getting your voice out there, especially with the young adult book. You know, on a Saturday, kids coming in with their parents, you'd be amazed at how many parents will make their kid go to the table and be like, say hi, you know, and, <laughs> nice. and you being a former teacher, I think it's good. So I do think you have to put, and I know, and I know you don't, you are a marketer by nature and a kind of a personable person by nature, but too many writers just think they can write a book with a small press and then expect it to just sell. I can tell you it, it won't. You have to put yourself out there, go to libraries, do what, um, there's a couple of Matt Cedillo and David, um, mm -hmm. who wrote, uh, David Romero, who wrote, my name is Romero. Mm -hmm. They go to bookstores and oh, pitch sure. their book and say, Hey, at least sell it on consignment for me. And I really do think the more that we as writers take the responsibility that this is our love and this is our book and we have to put it out there. Right. And if you don't, right. or the whole goal is not to make money, but it's for people to read it. Absolutely. It's for it to be at the libraries, right? And so right. scheduling events at libraries and then the librarian, whenever you have an event at their library, you know, Alan Kalichi, Kalachi is an Upland library. He's a librarian there. Other writers that we all know that we can bring into the fold and be like, hey, can I do an event at your library? The Ontario Library. I know the librarians there. I'll send you their contact. Oh, great. They'll Thank give you. you an event and they make you a poster. It's so cute. Nice. They make you a really nice poster. And I they work it. at your event in the Inland Empire magazine, which is like $500 for an ad in that magazine, I think. So okay. just, you know, as writers, the more that we can market our work and get your work out there yourself. Um, really quick, we're going to go to about 810, but, um, and I want you to read five more minutes at the end. Talk really quick about an organization that I know is dear to your heart, writers who submit. And then um, I'd like you to tell everyone how they can find you, what's next on your agenda, besides yes. the sequel, how they can take a class with you. And then uh, and then if you could end us out with the reading. Sure. So um, I've been for the last more than 10 years involved with Women Who Submit. We're an organization that empowers women and non-binary writers to send their work out to literary journals, apply for fellowships and residencies, and participate in literary citizenship. So through um, women who submit, uh, I've been I've been encouraged to and then become a fiction editor for Border Census magazine, fiction editor with Be the Review. Um, I ha took those skills when I went to grad school and I um, worked on Ricochet editions. Um, I I don't know that I would have felt as confident in my ability to do all of these things. If I hadn't been part of this organization, we, um, when the organization first started, we would get together once a month and just sit to do the business of writing. And then when someone would send something out, hey, I submitted to Inlandia Journal, everyone claps and cheers, yay. And then now our organization has grown tremendously. You can find us on womenwhosubmitlit.org. And we have, um, we have chapters all over the country. We have chapters in um, other countries now, and we have quarterly programming. So our, um, and our quarterly programming is recorded and you can see previous programs on our YouTube channel. Um, and everything is free. Our organization is uh, just received nonprofit status this year and mm -hmm. all of our programming is free. So we provide these services and my role has shifted over the years. And I'm currently, um, my primary role now is um, with the anthology that we put together every other year. 
We, um, our first one was called Accolades. You can find it on uh, Bookshop. And I believe also um, at some independent bookstores will we'll carry them. And then our second one um, two years ago was Gathering. And our third anthology, Transformation, will be coming out later this month. Um, we will be having events. Um, right now, I know we have an event scheduled at North Figueroa Bookshop in Los Angeles and Ooh. at the West Hollywood Library. And we will have a reading and event at the AWP conference in Kansas City. Um, Women Who Submit will be there with their anthology. I have events scheduled with my book um, this Friday. I will be at the Remax Christmas Market on Hobson Way in Blythe, California. I will be sitting there with my parents at a booth. Um, think farmer's market kind of table, uh, signing books that people pre-ordered, selling books if anyone's interested. Um, and people who stop by will get to see the video that my dear friend's husband made of my childhood rodeo photos and videos and belt buckles and some quotes from the book. It'll be uh, playing on the on the iPad um, throughout the, the event. Well, as long as my iPad battery lasts, right? Because there's no electricity. Um, and then um, that will be my last event of 2023. In 2024, I will be at the Altadena Library on January 16th, at um, the Book Jewel on January 20th, and um, the Echo Park Library on January 21st. In February, I'll be, like I said, at the AWP conference. In March, I'll be at uh, Bel Canto Books in Long Beach with some other Macondistas doing a reading. I'll be um, at Rorschach March 17th. And then I'm working on an event in Las Vegas with uh, one of my USC classmates and a coworker from Otis who went to UNLV. We're um, trying to put together a reading in Vegas. Um, I'm really trying to do which is a big rodeo town by the way i know i know the rodeo is there right now oh yeah south point yeah yeah right now. Mm -hmm. so part of my thing is you'll notice that none of these events are like me me come see me it's all about being in community the rorschach event i'm um now doing it with um with other usc classmates oh, some of whom cool. are working on their next book projects so i really tried to um make these events about one of my communities or people within my varying communities so that other people's voices are amplified. I'm trying to follow your example and really make space for you all writers. You are so generous, Tisha. And, you. Uh, you know, I have to tell people that anything that I put out there, I get back a hundredfold. Um, it happens. Karma's yeah, real. It is real. I have a very good friend and mentor, Joe Scott Coe, who's uh -huh. going to be on in January. She just came out with right. and her witness. When I first started writing, she was my teacher. I took a memoir work called invisible memoirs with her. And um, I learned a lot from her, but after that workshop, she invited me to do a reading at, um, at um, the Garcia center. And I got paid and I was so nervous. I'd never really read like performed. I didn't really perform back then. I, I it was more a typical reading, but um, I just think that, Every time I put something out, I get so much back. Of course. And you course. are one of the most generous people. Every single Thank writing you. event you have you. involves other writers or amplifying other voices or artists like Rosie Cortez 
And I just think you are an example of literary citizenship. You know, it's really important. It's really important. And um, so if you send me a list of your events, we can share that on my wall too. Um, I'm going to make a new graphic after Friday's event. So we'll have good with dates and stuff. Great. So um, before we go, how about you lead us out with a reading and then don't leave after we sign off. You and I have a little chat. Okay. I'm I'm going to mute. I'm going to read from a later chapter called Trail Ride. And I'm just going to read the first part of it. So it'll be a little bit shorter than the first reading. And you, what you need to know is that there are some little kids in the story. They're called the Peewees. Um, there are some younger younger children in the, in the junior rodeo events um, that, that at this point in the novel, Adriana is kind of mentoring in sort of way. While our horses nibble at ground cover, Monica asks me, is Eric your boyfriend? Wendy Blackwood, Tyler's little sister, adds, he's so cute. She gets a far off look in her pale blue eyes that reminds me of Maritza's, the look that says, if he doesn't love me, I'll die, framed by a face that usually ends up broken and streaked with tears. Not sure how much kids their age should know. I wish Blanca were here to answer instead, but her family went to watch Osvaldo in his first college rodeo. No, just my friend. But Monica persists. Why? Do you have a boyfriend? I don't. Sometimes it's better. I think about Haley and the trouble she's had. Maritza's mess with Gabriel. Boys are kind of complicated. Not sure what I mean by that. I look at Barb for some help. Little ones, she says. Right now, it's better not to distract yourselves. Don't you want to win belt buckles and saddles and things? They both nod enthusiastically. Then stay focused on your goals. Barb continues, having a boyfriend takes time, and that time should be spent with your horses. Wendy believes Barb completely, but Monica is more skeptical then why do girls on TV act all happy when a boy likes them? I take over. Do those girls rodeo? Do you ever see them do anything but their hair and makeup and talk on the phone about boys? I don't ask her if Josh talks to Blanca on the phone. Both girls frown and shake their heads. That's what Barb's talking about. They shrug and continue riding ahead of us along the trail. You believe all that? Barb asks quietly because I've seen the way you look at my nephew, distracted. She laughs softly at her own insight. I hope she can't see how embarrassed I am. She has me all figured out. This new trail is far away on the other side of Hemet. It's cool enough now to spend the day out in the open without worrying about the horses overheating. Our campsite faces Lake Hemet and the San Jacinto Mountains. For our afternoon break, we stop at the lake Ground tie the Appaloosas, Barb and I rode. As I doze off against a rock, I watch one of the boys push another one in the lake. They are all drippy when they come after me. At least Josh takes off my boots before Rob and Eric pick me up by my hands and feet and throw me in. The water is much colder than I expect. Barb stops them when they get to the little girls who are screaming no and suggests we unsaddle the horses and ride them in. Riding bareback and barefoot is dangerous, but we don't care. The horses swim, occasionally walking when hooves touch bottom. Eric and Duke hang out by me. Eric's eyebrows are squinched together like he wants to say something, 
but I don't ask what. Not now. Instead, I try to relax and enjoy it all. Why can't I stay here forever? In Blythe, there is no lake. Out in the middle of the desert, these friends won't be there either. We get to our campsite after the sun sets, so we light a few lanterns. Fiona has set up tents and a washing station. After the horses are fed and watered, Barb fires up her camping grill for the carne asada. Barbecue smoke reminds me of dad, and I miss the way we were. What's wrong? Eric asks. I should have told him already. My dad got a new job, and he's moving. Saying it out loud makes it real. My mom and I are staying here, at least for now. I sit down and bury my face between my arms and knees. I didn't help tell you because I hoped I could make it not happen. Choking on my words, I stop when I feel Eric's hand on my back. He exhales long and loud. Where's he going? Blythe. He kneels down next to me. Do you want to stay here? I sniff and wipe my snot on my pretty shirt. If Maritza saw me, she'd be horrified. I'm horrified, but Eric isn't looking at me. He's squinting at the distant darkness like he's making a plan. This is not how I imagined tonight, but I continue. Of course I want to stay, and mom's been okay so far, as long as Thea keeps helping her grow the business, she won't move either, but he's my dad. He's always been, and I can't finish because I start crying again. Don't worry, he says, we'll think of something. Then he helps me up and puts his arm around me. Heat transfers from him to me or me to him, I'm not sure. When I look up, the fire reflects in his eyes, almost orange. His dark skin is dull with grief. Barb gives me the one eyebrow up concerned look. When I shake my head in her direction, I can tell she isn't convinced. I'm not sure I am either. Mm. So beautiful. So, Thank so you. Poignant. The dad having to leave economic, you know, very blue collar book. Everyone listening and watching please go get Breaking Pattern. You can get it on Bookshop. You can get it on Barnes & Noble. You can get it on the Inlandia page. Okay, just go out and get this book. Also, write a review. Write a review. Um, that's the best way after you buy a book, if you love it, if you could write a review. Um, so everyone get Breaking Pattern by Tisha Marie Reikley Aguilera. Um, did Thank I say you. it? Ooh, did I get Perfect. it right? Perfect. You can also get a book Friday, 4 to 10, at the Remax Christmas Market here in Blythe, California. Well, which is the IE for those yeah. IE listeners. I wanted to do a little shout out before we sign off. Um, I'm going to take a month break, but I will be back on January 17th with Joe Scottco, who just wrote on Yay. her witness. Uh, Vincent Cooper, who's a uh, Macondisto, yes. Macondista, and he wrote Infidels, which is a beautiful book about service in the military combined with punk rock and Chicano culture. And then Leticia de Toro, who's another Macondista yes. who just wrote a beautiful book. She'll be here in February, Romaine, Washington in February. Yes. Sochi, who is the director of Women Who Submit, yes. who just wrote a beautiful book. I wish I had it right here so I could hold it up. Um What's in the, the other room where I would hold my What's hand? The Sorry, name of it. Um, yeah. So, Incantations. So, Incantations. It's so beautiful. Out from Mouthfeel Press. Oh, beautiful book. She's going to be here March 6th. James Coates, March 20th. 
Elsa mm-hmm. Valmiziano, who's a Filipina, who just wrote a beautiful book as well. She'll be here April 3rd, and then April 17th, Carla Samet, and then I'm taking another hiatus, because if I don't, my husband, my husband's gonna kill me. Um, yes. Yeah, great lineup. Yeah, I really like my lineup for next year. It's very um, well representing IE writers and Macondistas. And um, and then Carla Samet, she's a poet. And she's, I think, the poet of Altadena, the poet laureate. Mm -hmm. She's Um, also Women Who Submit. And part of Women Who Submit. So she's part of Women Who Submit. I think that um, Leticia uh, Del Toro is as well. And so, like, and so she's the director. We have a lot of really cool people coming on next year. So I just want to do a shout out for that and thank people. Anyone who wants to be on the podcast, I'm going to take a hiatus for a month. And when I'm back in January, I'll go to April. And then I'm probably going to take a hiatus till September. I'm going to take a rather long break so I, so I can really market my podcast and get it out there now that it's on Apple Podcasts. Thank you, Tisha. And work on your writing. I work on my own YA novel called Runaways that I'm working on. And it's really hard fiction. Oh, the imagination required to create this stuff. And I know a lot of your stuff is based on your childhood, but it's not you. You no. know, Adriana is not you, you no. know, um, and her friends are not your friends and the parents are not your parents. I mean, right. we all use ca- characteristics, but it's not memoir. And I actually think fiction is really hard for that reason. You know, with, with memoir, the structure almost comes organically. Mm-hmm. With uh, fiction, you got to figure out how you want to structure it. It's not your life. So you can do anything you want, but you can do anything you want. Right. It can be a blessing and a curse. So thank you for writing this beautiful YA book. It's a really big inspiration to me while I'm working on my own. Thank you. I really appreciate your friendship and your literary citizenship, like I said. So thank you, everyone. Go out and get Tisha's book, please. Thank you, Jim. And yeah, and for anyone that um, I'm going to send Tisha a cup, a Life of Gem cup, anyone that writes me a review on Apple Podcasts, I will put you in a drawing for a Life of Gem cup. Please do that. I have one really good review up there, but I want more people who listen in or watch. Just go to the Apple Podcasts on anything and you can write a review. Thank you, everyone. We're going to take Bye. off. Bye. Yeehaw. Oh, I forgot to say I wore my little cowboy pin for you. Oh, nice. I love it. That's a beautiful boot. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's an antique. I got it at like a, I think I got it at the South Point, like little fair for the radio. Nice. That's really cool. Yeah. 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 Okay. Bye you. everyone. <laughs>